0: Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of A1 Insights. I'm your host, Sophia Navard, and today we'll be discussing the primary prevention of RSV through maternal immunization. We are joined by Dr. Suzanne Stabler, who is here with us. Thank you so much for joining us, Suzanne. Thank you for having me, Sophia. Oh, my pleasure. Um, So to start, tell us a bit about yourself and your clinical nursing background.
1: Sure. So I am currently a clinical professor at the Nell Hobson Woodruff School of Nursing at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and I maintain my practice as a neonatal nurse practitioner at Grady Hospital. So I've been a neonatal NP for almost 30 years now, and my area of scholarship is in policy and advocacy. And so I am really focused on making sure moms and babies have access to approved therapies in order to improve maternal and infant mortality and um, just overall global outcomes. And so I do a lot of work also with the National Coalition for Infant Health, which shares the same mission and vision.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, let's get started. Suzanne, can you please explain what RSV is and how it's transmitted.
1: Certainly, so RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus and this virus is um, a virus that belongs into the pneumovirus family, much like COVID. And it was first isolated back in 1956. Um, What many people don't realize about RSV is that RSV is a seasonal virus, much like the flu. And so the timing and duration of RSV season will vary year to year as well as based on geographic location. So in the United States, seasonal outbreaks typically occur between October and May, with the peak usually happening sometime in February. RSV is um, primarily a human pathogen and it's highly contagious. So it's commonly spread through direct and indirect con- contact, sorry, contact with infected secretions. And RSV is capable of surviving for several hours on hard surfaces and for more than 30 minutes on our hands. So this in turn favors much faster transmission among people with close contact.
0: Okay. And who's most susceptible to acquiring RSV? Well, RSV is
1: very common and it affects nearly every child by the age of two. Um, infection with RSV does not um, provide lifelong immunity, unfortunately. And so reinfections do occur frequently. Um, When you look globally, RSV is the leading cause of hospitalization due to severe respiratory infections in uh, infant and pediatric populations under the age of five. But the elderly population, so those over 65 or those with um, underlying pulmonary conditions are also very susceptible to RSV. All
0: right. And Suzanne, how does RSV infection affect newborns? Well, RSV generally
1: presents, um, much like a common cold like illness, but Um, it progresses to serious lower respiratory infection type symptoms, which include things like nasal flaring, chest wall retractions, tachypnea, wheezing, low um, oxygenation in the blood or hypoxemia, and respiratory failure in about 20 to 30% of infants who contract it. So newborns are at highest risk for infection and severe disease requiring hospitalization if they are born prematurely, if they have chronic lung disease of prematurity, if they have congenital heart disease, Down syndrome, immunodeficiency, um, or other airway or neuromuscular abnormalities such as cystic fibrosis. So we now even have data demonstrating that the risk of RSV hospitalization among premature infants who are born before 36 weeks gestation and who are less than six months old is twice that of a term infant. Um, But that isn't to say that term infants aren't at risk as well.
0: All right, so what are the current challenges with a newborn RSV monoclonal antibody therapy? Well, there's
1: a lot of challenges, Sophia. Um, the biggest barrier for patients and families has been access. So when you look at the FDA label for palivizumab or Synergis, um, and I'll be referring to it as Synagis just because it's easier to say. Um, premature infants who are born before 35 weeks gestation and who are um, less than six months of age. Children with chronic lung disease who are less than 24 months of age and children with congenital heart disease are eligible for therapy according to the FDA label. Um, Synergis has been available for this high-risk population since 1998 when it was the FDA approved. Um, But that all changed in 2014 when um, the AAP recommendations for um, therapy changed. And so the AAP in 2014 stopped recommending RSV immunoprophylaxis for um, premature infants born at 29 weeks or above. And so access for these babies who are still at high risk has been an issue. because of this so 2014 so be, because of synergists and because it was such an effective therapy we have this whole generation now of pediatricians who have never really seen or had patients with severe rsv disease and that um then becomes problematic for parents who also have limited knowledge of rsv early detection and treatment um There's also been some issues related to conflicting guidelines between the American Academy of Pediatrics and the National Perinatal um, Association. And so there's there's significant differences between those two organizational guidelines. Um, The NPA guidelines were developed in 2015 and then revised in 2018 after exhaustive reviews of current evidence. And NPA found that guidelines for dosing, according to the FDA label, um, continue to support a decrease in significant burden of disease for premature and young infants. Um, Contrasting to that, the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines are much more restrictive, denying immunoprophylaxis to otherwise healthy premature infants born at or after 29 weeks gestational age. So, um, and since that time, we have really good evidence um, evaluating the burden of disease in these um, gap babies as we call them. Um, So those babies born between 29 and 36 weeks gestational age. And um, if they go without RSV immunoprophylaxis and then they get RSV, they tend to have more severe disease Um, Many require ICU admission up to 45% of them and mechanical ventilation. And so the severity of disease um, is also noted to be increased with a younger chronological age and an earlier gestational age. And so um, this creates all sorts of um, concerns. And then when you look at insurance coverage, The majority of state Medicaid programs and private insurers follow the AAP guidelines to determine eligibility for therapy and coverage of treatment. And so many times this puts providers who prescribe the therapy for their patients at odds with the insurers, and then parents are caught in the middle because they're trying to navigate the denial and appeals process for their payer plan. And it can be completely overwhelming to them.
0: Thank you, Suzanne. All right, let's take a moment. We're going to hear from A1 nurse, Alisa Klein. All right, let's hear from Lisa. Hello, my name is
2: Lisa Klein. I have been a nurse for over 40 years and have spent the majority of my career caring for mothers and infants and have been a career-long A1 member. I have had experience working with children with RSV as well as delivering and postpartum moms. I am very excited about the prospect of an RSV vaccine. I think that it has great hope for us in the care of families. I wanted to share with you a couple of cases that I have worked with where RSV was a significant factor. These cases were pre-COVID, so we did not have to deal with the isolation issues that are going on with COVID at this time. One mom was a postpartum woman who returned to the emergency room within a week of delivery with a severe headache, but also had some upper respiratory symptoms. When she was in the emergency department, her blood pressures were elevated, and so they called an obstetrician who decided that she needed to be started on magnesium sulfate. At the same time, because of her respiratory symptoms, a respiratory swab was obtained. This was negative for flu A and B, but it was positive for RSV. This created a significant challenge for us. We needed to admit this mother to be on magnesium sulfate for her preeclampsia or pregnancy-induced hypertension, but we also had a woman who had RSV, and we did not want to place her in the same vicinity with newborns who would be extremely vulnerable to this if they were to get it. We were trying to decide whether to put her on a medical unit with one owner OB nurse pulled to care for her full-time 24-7 or to place her on the OB unit but try to maintain isolation while also having other moms and babies and family members on the unit. We were also very confused because we had a baby that was also involved. Most commonly, when we had moms readmitted on magnesium sulfate, we would have the baby readmitted with her. The baby had already been exposed Could we bring this baby in, and would a face mask be adequate to protect this baby from getting RSV from the mother? We assumed the baby was already exposed because the baby had been living in the same house and mom had been nursing with her upper respiratory symptoms. We ended up bringing the mom onto another unit in the hospital, pulling one OB nurse to care for her 24-7, and trying to have the baby have mom pump and dad taking milk back and forth to the baby. Certainly not an ideal situation. In another case, we had a mom who arrived in labor with upper respiratory symptoms and a child that was already known to have RSV. She was swabbed for um, respiratory infection and turned out to also be positive for RSV. What do we do with her? She's in labor. We didn't know what to do with her after delivery. What do we do with the baby? Could they be together? Could the baby go home when we already knew that there were six siblings in the house? As we usually did, we checked the CDC's transmission based precautions and learned that they addressed precautions, which were contact and droplet um, isolation for infants and children and immunocompromised adults. But this was not an immunocompromised woman her infant would be. What we ended up doing with her was to have her use a mask, train her in good hand washing, allowed her to be with her child when she had a mask but encouraged her to pump her breast milk. However, we did have to keep the baby in the hospital for 10 days to make sure that the baby didn't show up with RSV later on. It was a very challenging situation. I really do hope that a vaccine in our future will be something that will be helpful.:
0: All right, we just heard from A1 nurse Lisa Klein, who briefly spoke on her experiences in treating pregnant women with RSV, and you know, shared a little bit of optimism regarding a, a vaccine possibly coming down the pipeline. Uh, Suzanne, can you give us your take on this?
1: well sophia as we heard from lisa mothers are susceptible to RSV as well and this can complicate the care for both mother and baby at delivery and during that immediate postpartum phase of care so immunizing mothers is considered by some to be a safer and more effective means of providing protection for the baby So when the mother receives immunization, her body responds to the immunization and creates antibodies, which then are passed to her baby via the placenta. So when the immunization occurs in the last trimester of pregnancy, she has immunity and so does her baby.
0: All right. All right, so now let's move on to the uh, RSV maternal candidate vaccine. Uh, Can you tell us briefly about how it works and why this is important?
1: So um, the new RSV maternal vaccine is currently in phase three trials. And this vaccine is a recombinant RSV antigen vaccine. So it works much like the hepatitis B vaccine, pretty much the same technology. This recombinant DNA technology involves inserting um, the encoded antigen. So RSV-A and RSV-B proteins in this case, which will stimulate an immune response. And and you insert this um, DNA encoded antigen into bacterial or mammalian cells in a lab. And then those cells begin to express the antigen. And so then in the lab, as those cells create the antigen, then you extract that antigen and that's what is used then for the vaccine to create immunity in humans. This type of technology offers a lot of advantages over traditional vaccines, um, such as um, better safety profiles and lower production costs.
0: Okay. And so how does the RSV vaccination affect pregnancy and postpartum? Um, Well, the goal of
1: maternal immunization is to protect infants who are too young to be immunized from RSV associated infections in their first months of life. And this occurs through passive transmission of antibodies from the vaccinated mom to the baby in the last weeks of pregnancy. Um, as to the effects during pregnancy, that is the main question that will be answered in the phase three trial, which started in October of last year. So um, we don't really know the answer of how it will impact pregnancy in the postpartum phase of care at this point in time.
0: Okay. And can you give us a brief overview of the phase, you know, phase one and phase two trials as well? Sure.
1: So um once a, a new drug is developed and the animal studies are complete, um, companies will file an investigational drug ap- application with the FDA, which includes a plan for testing in human in humans. So phase one trials are typically on a small number of healthy individuals looking at safety indicators, um, such as side effects and how the drug is metabolized. Then you move into phase two trials, which are typically focused on effectiveness, and you expand the number of participants sometimes into the low 100s. For this vaccine, um, which was given to non-pregnant women, there was a high level of what is called protecting neutralizing antibodies. So we saw the protective immune response that they wanted to see with a 14-fold increase in antibody titers for both RSV-A and RSV-B as early as one week after injection. So that was um, a very promising um, phase two trial. And so subsequently then the FDA approved them to move into phase three trials.
0: Wonderful, thank you, Suzanne. All right, and last but not least, and can you, Please explain the vaccine approval process and the status of the RSV vaccine at this moment.
1: Um, sure. So um, again, the, the, the RSV maternal vaccine is currently in phase three trials. And a phase three trial expands the number of participants significantly to over a thousand typically. And you evaluate the drug safety and effectiveness and potential side effects in um, the, the population. So in this case, um, the phase three trial is in healthy pregnant moms. So um, moms who have any type of complications with pregnancy would be excluded from the trial. So these are healthy, low risk moms, and um, they are getting the vaccine um, in that last trimester of pregnancy. Um, the drug company, smith klein Glaxo, is hoping to be able to have preliminary data um, later this year to present. And so after your phase three trial is um, completed, then the FDA will approve you to move into phase four, which is um, much like what we see Um, happening now with the COVID vaccine, only it wouldn't be under emergency use authorization. And so you would be able to begin to give the vaccine to pregnant women while very closely monitoring for any safety concerns and any significant side effects. Um, And all of those would have to be reported through the MedWatch program of the FDA and then um, once that phase is completed then all of that data is then compiled and tabulated and then um, the um commit the asip uh, the committee uh advisory committee on immunization practices would evaluate that data and determine whether or not this immunization from a um, risk benefit and uh, cost benefit um, is included in the schedule, uh, the immunization schedule for pregnant moms.
0: Okay, okay, thank you, Suzanne. Uh, any parting thoughts for our nurses who are, you know, patiently waiting for this vaccine to come through?
1: well unfortunately since we're just in phase three trials um, we're going to have to wait a little bit longer assuming everything goes well with this phase three trial it will probably be at least another couple of years before we see this um, hitting more widespread use Um, so we are anticipating if everything goes well it'll be sometime in 2023 before we see um, moms be able to be immunized on a regular basis for RSV um, and then providing their babies that maternal antibody coverage against the disease.
0: Okay. All right, Suzanne, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us and to share your insights with our listeners today. We appreciate your time. It's
1: been my pleasure, Sophia.
0: All right, thank you. This podcast was supported by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention through a sub-award from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Department of Health and Human Services, or the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Thank you for tuning in, and until we meet again, remember that we are all stronger together. This has been Sophie Navard for A1 Insights.